Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org donate. For today's episode, Philip Clayton speaks with ecological economist Mark Anielski. Mark is the author of the award-winning book, The Economics of Happiness, and most recently, An Economy of Well-Being, which presents a new economic model for measuring progress and performance called Genuine Wealth. Philip and Mark begin their discussion by diving into the major themes of an economy of well-being, including Mark's critique of the notion that money equates with well-being and happiness. Mark also talks about the ways in which he resonates with the Green New Deal, why he's not on board with the degrowth movement, paths to an ecological civilization, and where he finds hope. And now, here's Philip and Mark. It's my privilege today to welcome Mark Anielski to the Ecosiv podcast. This is Philip Clayton, the president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization. My guest today is um, known by name and publications, if you haven't already met him in a podcast. Mark Nielski is an economic strategist who specializes in measuring the well-being and happiness of nations, communities, and businesses. Mark holds three degrees from the University of Alberta and was professor of corporate social responsibility and social entrepreneurship at the University of Alberta's School of Business. He's known for his publications, which we'll talk about, and lectures widely on the economics of well-being and happiness, works extensively as a consultant uh, in Canada, the US, China, Tahiti, the Netherlands, Austria. We met in Seoul, Korea, where the government had asked him to come to a major international conference that the mayor of Seoul, Mayor Park, had put on. Um, and uh, it's become a privilege to share with Mark as a colleague and a friend. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks, fellow. Thanks for having me. You uh, sort of sprung to um, global attention for your best-selling book, The Economics of Happiness, Building Genuine Wealth, in 2007. Um, but the book that I want to focus on is the one that just came out in, in 2018, which is called An Economy of Well-Being, Common Sense Tools for Building Genuine Wealth and Happiness. Now, tell us, first of all, something that we ought to know so, which is that money does not equate with well-being and happiness. Why do we need to hear that? Why do you think that that isn't already clear to everybody, that that would be so superficial to equate money with well-being and happiness? Who could possibly make that error? Well, we seem to have made it uh, culturally, internationally, which is interesting because the, the evidence shows, that, at least from the research, that only a certain amount of income you know, results in a certain leveling off of happiness or, or life satisfaction. It's around $70,000 U.S. for a family. Um, some people say, well, I can't afford to live that way in Boston or from Harvard, of course. But interesting, if we look at the evidence and people asking people, you know, how much money do you need to be have a reasonable good life? I mean, everyone should earn a living wage. I think that's that's true. But kind of this pursuit of material wealth uh, doesn't lead to... 
you know, incrementally or marginally more happiness in the, in the economic sense. So even though the evidence is clear, we still continue to pursue more growth. So the question is, why do we have to keep growing if, in fact, uh, relatively speaking, we're, we're relatively happy? Yes, we still have the poor. We have still too many people not living, earning a living income or living wage. And so those are things we, we can solve, I think, as economists. But imagine if we were just had an economy of sufficiency, economy of well-being, where a kind of threshold of enough was actually the, the goal of society, not just more GDP growth. So the, the fundamental question, as John Cobb and I have talked many times, is what is the connection between money, the creation of the pursuit of more growth and therefore more money, and what is what is the nature of money itself? Why does it compel us? You know, why does the economy have to keep growing? Well, part of the reason is because we have a debt money system, which I've written about, and and I seem to be a broken record when I talk about this. But it's like it's like this collective. We're we're in a trance. We're in a sort of state of I don't know collective amnesia or something that we don't understand that money is within our power and our grasp to manage and control and create. And we can create it in relationship to well-being if, if we so choose to, or we can just keep going down this path, which will ultimately lead to a sort of systemic collapse, which we see over and over again in, in, in ancient civilizations have taught us, the Sumerians, Babylonians, that they, they had debt jubilees. They had what they call a clean slate. So they wiped out debts every seven years. Why was that smart? Because it actually reset the economic um, system very regularly rather than having this accumulation of debt which we have today in which everybody is worse off except for the you know the less than 1.1 percent who are super wealthy why couldn't we agree that well-being and happiness are the most important but those are really hard to measure so why don't we just measure economic success the way we standardly do so that we have some objective measure and then we can know that our inner values, let's say, are focused on well-being and happiness. Couldn't we make that distinction? Isn't that what the economist, the classical economist would say? Well, you think that's what the class, but the classical economists don't actually understand money. That's what I discovered in studying economics. And I have a forestry degree as well, so I had to study, study plants, why ecology is actually the, maybe the model that we, for the economy. But I think classical economists, people like Herman Daly himself admitted, I remember talking to John Cobb years ago, and said, why didn't you have a chapter on money in your, for the common good, right? And, and they said, well, because, John, because Herman said he didn't understand money. So, so I'll give, give the classical economists uh, neoclassical break uh, because they don't understand the money system. But I think what we're seeing now, the good news is we got countries and young female leaders in Iceland now and New Zealand and new Finnish uh, young women running government uh, who, are, who are for the first time tabling well-being budgets. Uh, so they're, they're actually saying, yeah, we, we could still measure GDP, but let's start to measure well-being indicators and track those alongside of GDP so that we're now this is uh, amazing news to me. I mean, this literally within the last year, these three in Scotland as well. Uh, and it's interesting that run by, you know, basically young women who are somehow alive to this truth that well-being is really a more uh, noble aspiration, a common but yearning. What I'm trying to see is um, there's something wrong with the logic that we value well-being and happiness, but we measure things like GDP. Is it, why is it that what we measure has such an orientation on how we think and how we act? 
You see, I was, I was trying to dichotomize them as, as economists did, have done in the neoliberal tradition. And you're saying, no, you can't separate what you measure and what you value or you won't get to your target. That's that, right. I mean, is that those, a fair way to describing what you're trying to get to? It is. I mean, there's an old adage, what you measure is what you manage, what you pay attention to. So the question, since Bobby Kennedy actually said it in 68, why are we measuring the things that don't seem to make life worth, you know, we're not measuring things that make life worthwhile, he said in 1968. Mm -hmm. But his challenge then was, well, you know, decades later, why are we not then managing? I mean, we have people like Stiglitz or Stiglitz saying it's time to retire GDP, or at least it's time to rethink this model that's been around since World War II. So we continue to focus on maybe because it's easy, we've done it so, so many years, it's easier to measure cash flow in the economy. And, and, but we, even economists now are saying it's not, it's not really complete. It's not, you know, it's not uh, sufficient to s simply measure cash changing hands anymore. So, yeah, we have this window of opportunity and, we're uh, and what I'm saying is I think we're now beginning to wake up, step into it, mature. Um, and and the, the, other, the fundamental question, why has there been such a reluctance? There's still a reluctance to change the fundamental accounting system. And, and because, because a lot of economists say, well, it's too complicated. Measuring well-being is subjective. It's, you know, it, there's no common standards. You know, happiness is different things for different people. But measuring spending is easy, I, whether it's in China or Bhutan. Money is money, right? And yeah. the more money we spend, the better things are, right? What if we started, this is an unusual question to economists, but what if we started with the individual family? How would the family changing what it measures change what it focuses on and allow that family unit a, the chance to, to thrive or to achieve more well-being and happiness? Could you help us think it through at that level and then we'll move outward towards civilization? Actually, <clears throat> that's a great, great reflection. I think, you know, I'm a macroeconomist, but really economy is oikos, household, right? Management, that's what economy means. So at the household level, uh, what are we doing to orient our own lives towards well-being and happiness, right? Because people say, oh, I just want to be happy, right? If you just, what do you, what do you aspire to? Well, what if you start to, you know, manage your own money and affairs, your, your you know, your, our, our relationship with money is weird as it is. Well, we're not really educated in managing money. We're very poor money managers. And, and we never taught that in high school or after three degrees at university. So if we were to, to sit down at the kitchen table and said, Let, let's, let's orient a well-being strategy for our household, whatever, however, you know, stage you're at in your, in your life. And, and then kind of rethink this, how much money do we need to have a sufficient you know, lifestyle or a relative amount of relative happiness. And, it, but everyone will be, of course, have their own view of what that is, their own view of a bundle of goods that contribute to well-being. Some of us think we want, we need more property or more stuff, but the truth is um, we, that doesn't bring us more happiness. So, so I think very practically you can sit down as a household and figure out, and I've done this as a business person is figure out how many hours do I have to work as a consultant to put bread on the table, to have the mortgage paid, hopefully the mortgage paid off. Right. So I'm now I'm, if I'm debt free, I'm, I'm way happier. I, I don't have to work as many hours paying for the mortgage. Right. Or, so those are the practical things you can do at a household level. What is now, something? 
what I'm going to say is that my choice, our choice to live more frugally, let's say, or less, less consumptively is actually a villain to GDP because we're intentionally living at a lower, um, you know, income level or lower spending rate. So it, it's a villain to Alberta's GDP. Uh, but I could tell you we're way happier because we have more, what do we have more time? We have more discretionary time. And time is the most common limiting thing that all of us have in common. So how are we going to optimize our use of time in a way that brings us more joy? You know, <clears throat> Could you take one step further into this, the, this little family example that we're playing with right now? And what are some things that um, a family might measure that would change its focus and possibly increase well-being and happiness at that level, right? Everyone's saying dad got a raise, mom got a raise, kids' allowance is going up and down. Those are all numbers, spending numbers. Help us think of the thing in a completely different way. What might you do if you came as a consultant to a family? Well, I, I, always, I always pause and smile because in truth, I think most of us don't measure at all. Like we, we live life kind of bumbling along, you know, when you look back in the rearview mirror and go, see all the things I worried about kind of took care of themselves somehow, right? So even if we have a perfect, let's say we have a well-being business plan for the household, which never happens, right? Because you say, well, I need a new toaster. So you go out and buy a new toaster. We, we buy on demand, right? We, oh, I need, I get attracted to this new shiny thing. Um, but then the question, I think, as a household, we have to sort of sit down and, and I mean, and I'm stumbling because I don't think there's a really clear answer except to have a, a very healthy relationship as a family to say, um, first of all, our kids don't understand what we, what we even do for money. Like we change, exchange time for money. So what does that look like? Well, um, you know, my daughters don't really understand what I do. Sometimes I don't understand what I do. Why people hire me. <laughs> but, but, to, to, but then to sort of sit down to be, pay attention to the the nuanced stuff, the subjective stuff, that like how we're feeling, uh, how we're mentally, physically, spiritually feeling, to be in touch with that, to be in touch with that in our kids, right? Uh, you know, one thing I love to do with young business students is who are want to be entrepreneurs. I said, "What advice can you give?" I said, "I can't give you any advice. I could tell you to write a business plan, but all I can tell you, say is uh, follow your heart. I mean, where does your joy?" Where do you derive joy from? I mean, it may be that you love playing jazz trombone on the side, but you're an IT guy. So, you know, pay attention to that joy. Where is, where is that? And I use the word joy because I think joy actually skews, skews the um, <laughs> trumps happiness and not in the, you know, in the flip way of saying that. But, um, so it's like that question, that's a deeper question. And that goes to your kind of our spiritual conversations too, is uh, where is joy derived in the relationship in our household, right? In a relationship with stuff, in our, in our when we go out and we use the word recreation, right? To, we go and recreate ourselves and where do we find great recreational time in nature? So those are the things I think they're very subjective, subtle things, but those are actually the foundations of happiness. Happiness, the science, the psychologists say the greatest contributor to happiness is relationships, right? So how are our relationships with our kids, our parents, our grandparents, our neighbors? Do we know our neighbors, right? Do we pay attention to their, 
Are, are we attentive to them? And, and the good, the bad, the ugly, the divorce, the conflict, the, you know, those are all, those are not non-economic, but they're all, they all contribute really to ultimately our happiness. Mark, I'm really glad that we <laughs> began our discussion in this unusual way because I think it brings out one of the core insights that underlies your work, which is um, that when everyone thinks, oh, Mark Anielski measures uh, well-being and happiness. That's his little piece within economics. And I think they miss that there's a fundamental reorientation that your work calls for, that we turn toward things that are of deeper value, not happiness in a superficial sense, but a fundamental joy of existence. That right. we turn toward community, whether it's native peoples or um, a family and its neighbors. These are the themes that you write about and the examples that come out in your book. And they are, it's a transvaluation of values. You're, right. ask, you're actually subtly asking us to look to what are the most fundamental or foundational values of all things. And out of that mindset then, to begin to measure and to run economies. Yes. Is that a fair summary? That, that's fair. And, and what I'm learning in, in, in you know, also an application is to reintegrate those into existing systems of governance, right? So we all have to produce budgets. You're an academic, you know, university has to produce budgets, capital operating budgets. So why not start to feather in this well-being impact analytics into our budgets? Why not ask the question, what will this new building contribute to the well-being of students or professors or, uh, and, and so you can translate this down, you know, to the household level and all the way up to the national level. So this, these aren't revolutionary ideas because accounting has been around for at least 500 years. Uh, you know, the question I always ask my business, what, why do you count? Like if you, if you didn't have to keep a set of financial statements, would you? Really, honestly, you're business students. And most would say probably not. Well, why not? So why do you? Uh, don't know. Well, think about it. What do you have to <laughs> file every year? Tax returns, right? So who cares about your financial performance? Oh, IRS does, because they want to know how much they can tax you, right? And, and so an accounting profession, you know, exists because of this. So what I'm saying is, very practically, we're just going to try to integrate this well-being analytics and impact analysis into our existing governance structures so we're not upsetting anything we're just sort of saying look that's oh, us too complicated really is it is it too complicated to ask some very simple questions about well-being impacts mm -hmm. let me make a, um, a big shift and um, talk about some of the things that are part of your measures that people would be most skeptical about that they would say could not be measured and uh, when I've heard you talk about your work uh, consulting with Edmonton uh, and other others, and look at the slides that you show in your various talks, I'm amazed at the things that you claim to measure. So could you, just to give people who may not know your work some sense of it, could you take one or two of those, of those variables that you say, not only are, well, yes, these are important, and we can measure them and place a dot on a, Flower chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk, just so, give us a couple examples that will blow people out of the water a little bit. So, uh, you know, I I work with Indigenous people, First Nations, they call them in, in Canada. And they have this concept of their ancient wisdom as a person as a medicine wheel. So there's four attributes, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Now, a, a fully rounded person, like a wheel, 
it is supposedly equally balanced. So I've designed a survey called, I call it the soul print. I know it's really edgy word, but I'm also into like numerology and like I'm a numbers guy. So why do I study numerology? Because Pythagoras, all these ancient wisdoms say numbers matter, the, you know, Qigong and, and, you know, the Tao, the Tao is about eight forms and all this stuff. So interesting, right? Four, there's four attributes. So there's gotta be 36 questions. Why? Because three plus six equals nine, which is the number of spirituality. What is the word soul print rendered to numerologically? The number nine, the number of spirituality. So I'm a real trickster. So I've got this experiment going. I call it the soul print. I'm like, that's really edgy. It's like, yeah. Do I claim to be able to measure the, the, your, your soul? Not at all. But the questions I ask are on the spiritual side. When you wake up in the morning, how much love do you feel for yourself? How much joy do you feel in your life? Um, what's your relationship with money? In other words, do you feel you make enough money? I don't care what you make. I just want to know, do you, because what I'm getting at is what financial anxiety do you wake up with? Uh, you know, do you, and so those interesting questions are interesting. When I do the analysis, I've had 800 people take this survey and part through some of my, my actual applied work in communities, 800 people from the round world have taken my soul print survey. I got really interesting data. So now as an analyst, I've, I've correlated of the 36 questions I asked, and some of them are on the environment as well. Actually, only one question on the environment. How do you feel? They're all feeling questions. They're not thinking questions. I don't care about your opinion about climate change. I just want to know how you feel about yourself, your relationship with your neighbors and others. So the highest correlated variable with life satisfaction question, which is a question we ask globally every year now with the happiness survey, is joy, right? Number two, hope right? Where's the finance making enough money? It's like 16th on the list, right? So you can quickly see that money, even by those 800 people who've taken the survey is not the key variable to their life satisfaction. It is joy. It is hope. Uh, and these are interesting. These are tough questions. No one ever asks you about your joy or when you wake up in the morning, how much love do you feel for yourself? And now I can stratify by women and men, age Tahiti versus, you know, Baltimore or Pakistan, you know, so I've got some pretty cool data. You're breaking a lot of rules here, Mark. <laughs> and you're challenging an assumption that many of us make. So I'm going to try to state it and see how you respond. We make the assumption that there's a subjective part of ourselves feeling states and that those are hard to bring into language and one can experience them but not really think about them. And then there's the world where natural science and economics reign, where we objective things happen, we measure them, we make predictions and form hypotheses and test theories. Yes, yes. And you're refusing to play by the rules, buddy. You are <laughs> taking down the dividing line between those two and saying, you can ask people anything where they, where they can give, I guess, answers with some, some regularity, right? And then yeah. you, can, um, you can take a set of questions, right, uh, on a questionnaire, and then you can um, ask, give that to a very large number of people, and correlations emerge in, in the analysis. Those correlations can be interesting to the people who take them and to others, and that they can help us organize our individual lives and our corporate lives together at all levels as a result. 
I, Absolutely. Is that what you're saying? That, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm doing. Again, as you know, my indigenous friend might call me a trickster, you know, a raven or a coyote would be a trickster in creation. Yes. Am I upsetting the apple cart? Uh, yes and no, in a way. I mean, it, you're an academic. We, in research, we know that there's, you know, there's quantitative methods and there's these, you know, for surveying and there's, there's the qualitative research. Now I'm, I've been in this, this field for a long time as an economist in government. And so, you know, how do you interpret subjective or qualitative research versus quantitative, right? Well, to me, perception is reality. How you feel is how you feel. Uh, it, it is possible that, and we've discussed this, I think in Korea, in, in Seoul, is if you ask the happiness question, what is the word happiness in Korean or in Mandarin? I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's 50 shades of happiness in Greece, but there's only one in England. Or um, so, but what I'm what I'm honoring is the fact that if I ask you the happiness, the question is, all things considered, how do you rate your life satisfaction today? Today, now tomorrow, you might have a bad day. You have had a bad hair day, right? And, and you would rate yourself at three versus uh, seven, which was the day before. Not, not very likely because you, you'd say all things considered, how's my life you know, going? Um, but, but I'm honoring the fact that that subjective response is your perception in the mirror. <clears throat> so the soul print is a reflect, self-reflection of you. And I tell people there's no right or wrong score. The average score, and I, and I aggregate all 36 questions, and give out of a hundred basis points. So the average right now, which is interesting, you'd probably laugh is, guess what? 66.7. <laughs> you know, what, why does that matter? Because you're sort of, you know, people tend to be in the six out of 10 in the six, you know, are, are people in Tahiti more, you think people in Tahiti should be super happy. It's paradise, but they're not. Well, maybe because they're French, they have French influence. I don't know. It doesn't make sense that these people who live in the most beautiful paradise aren't super happy. Because when we go there in recreation and sit on the beach, we're like, are you kidding me? So there's all these paradoxes. Now, the thing that I'm doing with this too is really important. Because now I believe, and I've been working with some interesting folks in the blockchain world. So cryptocurrencies, a Bitcoin, you know, all that. Ethereum saying, what if life is about... So that I've got your soul print and there's Philip and he's, he's got his medicine wheel and he, Oh, I'm asking one question. Like how, how was your, how was your childhood? It's like, cause how your child, the theory says how your childhood was influences how your adult life satisfaction is. But sometimes you transcend a really rotten childhood. So your, your, your answer to the childhood is obviously going to be what, it, what you perceived it was when you were seven or eight the moment you were waking up really. And um, so so, the, so the, the opportunity here is that each of us now, <clears throat> what's life about? Helping each other develop our own soul, our own, maybe there's attributes of our mental well-being that we, we, we want to work on. Maybe we're bipolar, whatever, it doesn't, we all have different gifts and different challenges. So what if life now <clears throat> is this in, interrelationship between souls in which we, we actually can find a mechanism in which we can reward each other in some way, uh, maybe in some weird crypto space to help increase our score. 
and maintain a, a high a high level of flourishing. Uh, not that, again, that's because we'll all go through a dark night of the soul or whatever you want to call it. All of us will. All of us go through periods of ups and downs. But that would be an interesting platform for which an economy could operate. So now well-being optimization is the goal in Claremont, in Los Angeles, in, in a neighborhood, in a, in a company. <clears throat> that is beautifully expressed. Actually, that helps me understand this phrase, well-being optimization, um, in a way that I hadn't seen it before. So we have two other two remaining sections of our discussion. Uh, the next one um, are questions submitted by an economist who wants to know how you'd respond to these. So you can be as brief as you want, <laughs> or you can dismiss the questions outright, or tell us what's wrong with the question. Right? You've, you, I'm sure you've had such people um, ask you before. And then I want to close with your work and ecological civilization, which is the part I'm really uh, excited to see. Um, Mark Anielski, what do you make of the Green New Deal? What Green New Deal? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm Canadian, right? So you have to understand there's, there's a heart, there's a big wall, an intellectual border. Uh, if, if the Green New Deal, I mean, and I know a little bit about American history, right? The, the Roosevelt's, you know, during a time of, of economic challenge, Roosevelt came, you know. So in this, in this moment of uh, significant, I think, challenges of, of empire, of, uh, of civilization, we, we have an important opportunity to, uh, so I, I love a lot of the attributes of the Green New Deal. I would call it, of course, I would love to call it the well-being deal, the well-being economy. Come on. I mean, if New Zealand can do it, so can the United States. So can Canada. Maybe it's run by men. That's why. So we need, uh, you know, we need amazing young women like Cortez, whatever her name is, you know, or Warren. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's interesting. Some say 2020s. This decade is a decade of women. Okay. So maybe we need more. Maybe we need more, uh, more uh, yang, you know, <clears throat> or yin, whatever it is, more female sensibility. Because um, I was like, why is it that these four places have these amazing women leaders who've suddenly stepped in and offered what would seem to be just common sense economic advice and, and, and are leading uh, in coalition governments in New Zealand, for example. So, I love the spirit of the Green New Deal. I think, of course, I'm an ecological economist, so I believe you know that the ecology is a wholly owned parent company of the economy. Uh, so we need to be in harmony with nature. Like nature is the model, and nature teaches us, forests teach us that this is the model for the economy. It's about resilience. It's about optimization. Uh, forests, as we see in Australia, don't last eternally. Right? They they will burn. You know, there will be a catastrophic fire and there'll be a reset, but our economic systems are so driven by efficiency, productivity, that they can't, they can't accept kind of these interruptions, these major catastrophic interruptions. So we, we, I think we need, uh, yeah, we need that kind of imagination of the Green New Deal idea of thinking, as Roosevelt did, it was against all odds, right? He brought in some pretty significant social policy issues that, today would be called almost communist, right? Yeah. Next question. Are you opposed to profit? No. Except that I always explain to people that the founder of accounting, Luca Pazzioli, and his sidekick, Leonardo da Vinci, who de designed the double-entry bookkeeping system, 
For, for who? For the Medici's, for the bankers of Florence, Venice, the Birches of Venice, uh, said they never defined the word profit. So the word profit, actually, if you look in the accounting handbook, and I, I have an accounting background, you won't find a clear definition of the word profit. Why? Because Lucas said, in a guild society, which Venice was, of you know cooperative businesses, uh, there was no such thing. If there was any money left over, because all income was distributed to the members of the guild, right? And if there's anything left over, it was called a residual. It wasn't called a profit, it was called residual. And the decision then was made amongst our membership how to disperse that residual. We could retain it into, or divide it equally. We could give it to the poor or the community, but we had a choice. So interesting, if the word profit doesn't even formally exist in the accounting standards, then what are we talking about? So in that sense, um, that said, I think any business needs to have uh, financial resilience, it has to have something left over, uh, that residual, you know, to put it aside for a rainy day. Some days, some years you have years of planning and some days you have drought. So uh, optimizing, again, optimizing a fair return on investment on the assets is the game. That is the game of, of good stewardship now. Thank you. <laughs> These are great. I'm biting my tongue uh, because I want, to, I want to have the audience hear your, your response to each of these and let them put them together um, in their minds. Um, you offer us guidelines and in your consulting work offer governments and others guidelines on how to measure differently. It might se it seems, is it true that this means you are tweaking the existing system, but not rebuilding it? Correct. Or is your approach more subversive than that? Uh, I just mentioned the father of accounting, Luca Pazzioli, who was a Franciscan, uh, math, brilliant mathematician, advisor of the Pope. Um, Luca said, all wealth comes from God. What is word wealth? I've said the word wealth comes from the old English, which means the conditions of well-being. That's what it actually means. Luca defined a balance sheet as assets equals li liabilities plus equity, right? So what am I doing? I'm not, re I'm not changing anything. I'm saying nations and communities need to operate from an asset basis, from a balance sheet. The United States does not have a fully developed balance sheet. Neither does Canada. Uh, it's a weird thing because in the, in the public sector accounts, there's no proper asset account. There's no proper accounting of liabilities whether it's nuclear waste or uh, greenhouse gas emissions or divorce or whatever you want to say is, is a regrettable kind of condition that threatens future well-being. There is no proper balance sheet. So I'm saying, listen, guys, you, we're, we all suck at accounting. We, we are managing, Warren Buffett would be very upset if he didn't know what the brand value of Coca-Cola was on its balance sheet. You look at Coca-Cola's balance sheet and its brand value is there. Who, who calculated the value of it? We don't know. But we sure know Coca-Cola has incredible brand value. Uh, what's the brand value of the United States? I don't know. Right now, maybe it's not that great. <clears throat> so my, my point is that in order to be a good steward, a good economist. Uh, we need to operate by understanding the conditions of our human or social assets. 
our natural assets, the land, the quality of water and air, right? Those greenhouse gas emissions as liabilities, the oil in the ground as an asset, but to be used wisely and, and to reduce the environmental um, liabilities that are the consequence of its combustion and its development. Those are the things that a well-constructed balance sheet would, would lead, I think, to wiser decision-making, which does not exist in this world, even in spite of the work of New Zealand now and others in terms of this well-being. So my point, too, is let's not get too carried away with debating the indicators, whether the right choice of indicators. I'm talking about a fundamental return to the basis of accounting, which are at least 500 years old, if not older, probably going back to Samaria, right, and the ancient sacred geometry. It's all about sacred geometry. And, and we've forgotten, and we started this conversation saying, what did Pythagoras, where did he get his ideas from? The whole base of Western civilization and mathematics, you know, they're all about sacred geometry. And so we, we do ourselves a disservice by not paying attention to the need for, and, and then the, and the Chinese, you know, the Tao, the eight forms of the Tao, Tao Te Ching, right? Why eight? Why four aspects of the medicine wheel? Why is this? Why is there always circles? So why do we keep thinking in linear mindsets versus circle? The, cir the circle is the, the future. Last question from my economist. Be beautiful. <laughs> Last question from my economist friend. Um, growth is the problem. If we could get rid of the gr and growth economics to steady state, we'd get where we need to go. Why do you not address the growth problem? I'm not a degrowth person. I, I don't think if I was a degrowth person, then I would be, it would be anathema to a forest, how a forest lives and, and dies and, and renews itself. So I'm not a, I'm not a degrowth advocate. I'm not, and I'm not a like end, end economic growth. Not at all. Um, why? Because as Herman Daly encouraged me, you have to understand the relationship between the money system and growth. The, the only reason the economy has to keep growing, GDP has to be, grow at 2% is to manage the interest payments on the debt, the total debt in the United States or wherever country, which now stands at $72 trillion in the US, right? What, what's, what's the relationship between those two variables? A very high R squared, which means that the economy has to keep growing to service interest payments on the growing amount of debt, which can never be repaid. It's flattened, it flattened in 2008, the first time I've ever seen that happen since World War II. That means it's, it's like saying your heart stopped. The country had a heart attack. And, but then, with all the bailout money, guess what? And the resumption of debt, right? Now, that's my key point. You cannot solve this, this growth debate unless you un understand and address the nature of money and how it drives the need for growth, the need for overproduction. See, everyone's overproducing. Firms are overproducing to service their debts. Governments can handle the debts, so they offload it to citizens. Citizens are making, you know, less and less. Their, their incomes aren't even matching GDP growth. And so we have this, but nobody talks about this money system. It's like it's, it's like a leper or something. You can't, it's like nobody, the economists don't talk about it. Stiglitz, all these wise people who talk about well-being that never talk about it. And they, they, they say, well, you're a very dangerous man. It's like, why? Let, let's go to the heart of something. We, we created this money systems ourselves out of our imagination. And if we can't be creative enough to tie the creation of money directly to well-being, then we better go back to school. 
Perfect. Because we, we can't, we can do it. We could absolutely do it, but it will require either a global catastrophe because everybody's in this game, right? Everybody. So, that's the big challenge we face. And I say, I, that's so exactly I where, where I want to go in the, in our last few minutes. Um, so as ECOCIV, as an institute, studies the transition toward an ecological civilization. And I wanted to know whether you think that it's going to be necessary, given the brokenness of the current system, monetary in particular, that there's a collapse of the current system and the rebirth of something new? Or is there a smooth transition that you can conceive from where we are now to what a genuinely sustainable civilization would look like? Well, I think you and I, we can go right straight to the heart of this debate, I think, is uh, China. And uh, Alan Brown, who both of, we know, you know, the public banking you know, advocate in Los Angeles and brilliant woman, written all about public banking, first revealed to me the importance of what China has done and have been advisor to China, is that why is an eco-civ possible in China? Most, most likely in anywhere, because China has a sovereign monetary system, which means it creates its own money in a amount of quantity as it needs to do whatever it wants. So it, it has basically outflanked the West in its own game. How did it do that? By adopting Abraham Lincoln's idea of money systems. Way back before Mao, you know, through the, when the nationalists overthrew the Qing dynasty, Qi, Qing means happiness, by the way, it was a happiness dynasty, which was destroyed by the British Empire, right? By free trading through Hong Kong. And so the Chinese have a long memory. And they're like, let's adopt a, a dead president's idea about monetary sovereignty, create our own money, leave the private banks of England and, and Europe out of the equation and America. And so what does that mean? We can create as enough liquidity to build as many empty office towers as we want in Shanghai. We don't care. We don't care if they sit empty. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. I told them that. I said, you know, restore your land. Go to restorative agriculture. Don't get drunk on industrial agriculture like we have in the West. Restore your landscapes. Make sure your people who grow food well get a living wage and don't get pushed into Beijing. And and build a Silk Road, build, rebuild it, you know, but don't, you know, don't be hegemonic about this. You don't have to be, you've never been hegemonic in your history. And let's, you become the model, the salvation of the Western uh, conundrum. We're stuck in our own trap. Now, wouldn't this be an amazing kind of twist of fate, right? That China leads us out of the darkness. Now, I'm not saying it's gonna happen, I'm not saying that they're not making mistakes, or they even understand fully what they have. Because if you have your own monetary system in which you well, explain, you create money in relationship with well-being, you win the game. Because everyone else is choking on their own, right? Uh, because all we have to serve is a death. Says who? Change the rules, change the game, change everything. And ECOSIV is a beautiful, I mean, uh, you know me, I've gotten to the point of saying, well, well Ecosiv, well, let's call it a, you know, a civilization of love. Like, why don't we just go another step higher? And, and then and really, you know, step on the gas pedal in terms of uh, pursuing, in the word happiness, I'm end with that reflection, the word happiness in Greek, oidaimonia, well-being of your spirit, well-being of your soul. So could that not be the foundational platform for all economies? I think so. I was in the podcast 
Mark, with asking uh, the guest, what brings you hope? In a sentence or two, what brings you hope? Um, that's a good, that's a question I always ask my guests too. Is, um, what brings me hope is that, um, you know, that our lives, our souls are eternal. Um, we were created in the image of love. So love is who we are. Uh, I believe that we, we have many of us forgotten that truth or, or never being uh, supported in our deep understanding when we were children of that truth. So that's what gives me hope is that love is who we are. And damn it, Janet, to, to quote the Rocky Horror Picture Show, let's get on, let's get off our butts and do something bold and fun and, and, Let's have fun. Like we, we are not stuck. You know, a climate emergency is a crisis, as the Chinese say, an opportunity to try something new. So what gives me hope is that we have the ability to try something new. We can live comfortably on this planet. Uh, it will do it. It's rejecting us because we're not loving it. We need to love nature uh, and nature just waiting for us to say thank you. Just say thank you thank you to me and, and so love to me is the fundamental key to all of this um and it's it's a big word it's worth hundreds of pages of whatever debate but it's it's a pretty simple you know love god love your neighbor pretty simple <laughs> mark it's been a beautiful discussion you've taken us across a broad swath of contemporary society and our relationship with nature you are sometimes careful, numerical and analytic, and other times expansive, visionary, um, and driven by a spiritual vision. One couldn't call it anything less than that. And, and let's, be, let's be clear, very lonely sometimes because... <laughs> Fair enough, but, but you're, a, you're a prophet. Thank you so much for, um, for sharing with Ecosystem today. Thanks, Philip. It was a pleasure, as always.